Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 415, Crimea River. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jennifer, Alexander, and Rod for signing up already. William was charging north. If he was going to hold on to his new kingdom, he had to counter this threat in person. This situation in York was much worse than it had been in the previous year. Because now the unrest wasn't limited to just the people of York and Durham. Instead, they were joined by a huge army of Danes who were fresh off from cruising England's eastern shore, burning and looting whatever they could get their hands on. And so William and his army had no time for a stealth mission. This march was an all-out charge aimed directly at crushing the growing insurgency in the north. But here's the thing about popular insurgencies. They're called popular because they have local support which means that every person an occupying force sees on the street, every meek passerby, every kindly old man, very well could be on the side of the rebellion. The only sensible rule for an invading army is to trust no one, because chances are most people are against you. And sure enough, it wasn't long before informants streamed into the rebel city of York, carrying word of William's advance, as well as the size of his army. But William, on the other hand, faced an informational desert. I mean, sure, he knew the Danes were in York, but anything useful about the size or condition of the army would have to come from the people within York. And given how things have been going lately, I'm guessing there weren't too many people who were eager to give him the most up-to-date facts. So he was in a situation where he probably didn't even know what he didn't know. And that's bad. Now the rebels, for their part, were all too aware of their situation. For example, they would have known that King Swain had sent a large force of warriors, but it also wasn't on the scale of a conquering army. What Swain had sent was only about a quarter of what William had brought with him in 1066. And more than that, Swain hadn't even bothered to lead it himself, instead delegating that task to his half-brother. And this wasn't because of cowardice or inexperience. Swain was no stranger to a fight. He was battle-hardened, and he had proven time and time again that he was a skilled commander. So why did King Swain stay home? Why settle for sending his half-brother with just a quarter of the troops that the task called for? And why did he send them over so late in the year, when the campaigning season was already over? Well, we're left to guess. But the rebels within the city would have been well-informed and would have known exactly what the plan was. And today, historians suspect that Swain's plan actually didn't involve conquering England. At least not on this year. The order for this army on this year was probably to form a beachhead and prepare for the main force that was coming, likely with the King of Denmark himself, sometime in the following spring. 
And in the meantime, they could use this beachhead to recruit further support from the locals. And to do that, you actually don't need to hold York. And besides, it'd actually be really difficult to hold that city right now anyways, thanks to how the Norman garrisons had burned large portions of it down. And those castles might have helped, but the rebels, probably deciding it was safest to just destroy the damn things rather than risk them getting recaptured, had demolished them. But William wouldn't have known that, because his best informants would have been in the garrisons that were stationed in York, those same garrisons that were currently fertilizing the surrounding barley fields. So William was going in pretty blind, both regarding the situation in York and also with local knowledge in general. And that is a major disadvantage, no matter how good your bros were with horses. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that local knowledge, or lack thereof, could tip the balance in war. For example, the northerners would have been well aware that fall and winter brought heavy rains to the north. And in the face of those rains, the rivers of the Humber, Air, and Ouse would get pretty full. Geographically, the north of England is a major watershed. And that's great for things like avian biodiversity. But... It's not all that great for campaigning, especially when you're a chivalric army that had been recently deprived of your ships. And that issue would only get worse as the weather turned and the heavier rains came in. The longer this went on, the more difficult it would become for William's army to simply march. And the northerners could use those precious muddy moments to recruit more support and inspire other communities to rise up for themselves, thus making even more trouble for the Normans. The fact is that while William couldn't have known this, the rebel army probably had no intentions of making a stand in York, which is why, when William and his army approached the city, the rebels and the Danes boarded their ships and sailed right out into the Humber, leaving a burned city and a stunned Norman army in their wake. And what could the Normans do in response? Not much. And the chronicle relating this event doesn't mince words, telling us that the Danes and rebels had sailed into the Humber and the king was unable to do anything in response. So really, what could he have done? Maybe swear at them from the shore a bit? There's no record of William launching a fleet to try and deal with this hostile army that was currently happily bobbing up and down in the Humber. And it seems quite clear that the Norman naval capacity had been neutralized by the Danish raids. And remember, as the counter-invasion army was waiting there, they would still be able to use their advantage of having boats to quickly send emissaries around the country and gather further local recruits. So William's quick advance had earned him nothing more than a burned-out city and a fart in his general direction. Even worse, the fleet soon established a new beachhead on the southern bank of the Humber, all while the Normans were watching from the northern bank. And so now, in pure reaction mode, William and his knights were charging after them. And that meant they would have to cross the River Ouse, and then they would have to ride into what Orderic described as, quote, the almost inaccessible fens, end quote. Now, England is a notoriously wet place, 
but back then it was way more wet. Huge portions of the modern island landscape have been deliberately drained for infrastructure and agricultural development. But back in the 11th century, the landscape looked a lot different, and the fens were a boggy, reedy marsh. And the fact of the matter is that horses are not airboats. So William's charge quickly turned into more of a wade. But despite that rather significant hurdle, the Normans did somehow manage to destroy some of the rebel marsh camps. We aren't told how, and my guess is these were minor outposts that they happily left behind. But in the fighting, they did manage to force the Danes to retreat across the water to the Isle of Axholm. And there, the insurgent army, secure in the knowledge that cavalry armies weren't all that great at stealthy amphibious assaults, waited for an opportunity for vengeance. Now, bastard hype man Poitiers, whose record of this event survives through Orderic Vitalis, is nothing if not consistent. And so when he relates this story, he argues that the rebel army was actually terrified of William just through the sheer majesty of the way he commanded armies. And so they fled into the Humber and then out to Lindsay out of sheer panic. But historians generally disregard that statement as blatant propaganda and an attempt to cover for the fact that William had pretty clearly been outmaneuvered. Because this Dane-led retreat to the estuary and the establishment of a base on Axholm was pretty clearly tactical. But as the Danes were settling into their new island base, it was around that same point that a messenger would have reached the Norman army and delivered quite a shock. Exeter was under siege by the Cornish and the Devonians. More than that, Shrewsbury was besieged by an army drawn from Wales and Chester. And so now, William was sitting in a tough, really wet spot because the lands behind him were exploding into rebellion. But to deal with it directly would mean abandoning the north to the Danes and the Northumbrian rebels. And given how many of them there were, he needed to contain that threat and keep this army from growing. So he couldn't leave. But he also couldn't relinquish the south to the English and the west to the Welsh. That would be just as bad as letting the Danes run roughshod over his garrisons in the north. So he had to do something. And luckily for William, when he marched north, he had drawn a huge force to go with him, including a cartload of trusted commanders. And one such man had recently been appointed to govern Cornwall, Brian of Brittany. So the king dispatched Brian of Brittany to deal with the rebellions in Shrewsbury and Exeter. And with him, William sent his childhood friend and trusted companion, William Fitzosborne, and that would leave the king and the bulk of the army free to continue the fight in the north. And while our sources tend to write about the Normans like they're Marvel characters engaged in single combat against hordes of enemies, I'm quite confident that Fitzosborne and Bryant didn't actually go alone, and instead were accompanied by many, if not all, of the forces that were under their command when they'd first mustered into this army. And so they gathered up their soldiers, and off they went. Meanwhile, at Shrewsbury, the combined Welsh-Cheshire army had taken control of the city. Well, they'd taken control of most of the city. That castle was still there. And the defenders, shut behind the walls, 
Well, they didn't seem like they wanted to come out. And as the siege dragged on, I assumed that informants began arriving carrying word of where the king's army was headed, and also of how a contingent of it had pulled a Yui and was now headed right back to Shrewsbury. Because at about this point, the siege was lifted, and the Welsh Cheshire army changed their tactics. They changed to guerrilla tactics, with a focus on scorched earth. And Orderick tells us that they were so thorough in their efforts that when Brian, Fitzosborne, and their army arrived in Shrewsbury, they discovered that the city was now nothing more than a smoking husk. Yup, they burned the whole town down. I guess Edric was still pretty ticked off he'd been passed over for the title of Earl of Shrewsbury and decided to strike his rival directly in the pocketbook. It was the sort of brutal tactic that the nobility of this era seems to have had no trouble turning to whenever they felt they weren't getting their due. And the people of Shrewsbury, who hadn't chosen any of this, and who themselves were victims of the Norman occupation, now found themselves victims of the English-Welsh counterattack. But the leadership doesn't seem to have cared, and instead were focused on eking out the pettiest of victories against the Normans. And then... In classic guerrilla style, once the fires were lit, Edric, Blethen, and their forces retreated into the wilderness before the enemy could reach them, presumably to prepare for their next attack. And that was bad news for Brian and Fitzosborne, because not only had they failed to lift the siege at Shrewsbury, but the army responsible for that devastation was still out there, somewhere. However, Brian and Fitzosborne had been given clear orders. So rather than chasing the army into the Midlands, they continued their march south, heading towards the other besieged city, Exeter. But Exeter wasn't the only siege that was happening in the south. What about that castle at Montacute? I mean, if William had heard about what was occurring at Exeter and Shrewsbury... Surely he would have learned that his half-brother's castle was under siege by the people of Dorset and Somerset. Or if he hadn't, he soon would. So what exactly was happening with that? Well, the king had bigger fish to fry than protecting an idiot half-brother's lands, so he wasn't going to turn his entire army around to handle that siege any more than he was going to turn it around for Exeter or Shrewsbury. Instead, William fell back on his policy of leaving the job in the hands of the local officers that he'd installed. And in this case, it was Bishop Geoffrey de Mowbray of Coutance, who, in addition to his job as bishop, was probably also the Port Reeve of Bristol. And as you are well aware of by this point, just because a guy wears a fancy hat and scarf doesn't mean he's against violence and war. Peace was an end, not the means, to medieval churchmen. And Bishop Jeff was no exception. He had an idea of what he'd use to put down the rebellion at Montacute, and it wasn't thoughts and prayers. Instead, Bishop Jeff mustered an army drawn from Winchester, London, and Salisbury. Now, these are southern English towns, and unfortunately, the records aren't clear whether the men who answered this call were from the Norman garrisons or if the English had actually mustered alongside their new Norman aristocrats. And while the possibility of the English fighting alongside the Normans sounds surprising, given everything the Normans had done, Wessex was much more firmly under William's control than the rest of England, 
And Orderic actually writes that some of the English did throw their support behind their new Norman overlords. And he very well may have been talking about things like this mustering. Either way, though, Bishop Geoffrey managed to raise a large army of fighters in a very short period of time. All while the Dorsetshire army was stuck outside the walls of Montacute Castle. Now, this rebel army outnumbered the Normans inside the castle by a fair bit. And they probably would have loved for them to come out and fight. But if you have a Mott and Bailey castle, the whole point is to not come out and fight. And while the rebels would have loved to force the issue and make them fight, that proved to be a bit more challenging than they'd hoped. Because as we've discussed in the past, these castles were a nightmare to breach. And while the next best thing would be to maintain a siege and starve the defenders out, that would take forever. So the English could only mill around outside the walls and try and work out their next move. Do they maintain the siege and keep the garrison trapped inside? Or do they move on to other targets, leaving the Normans a tidy launching pad for future counterattacks? It's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? And I suspect their best option was just to hold the line and keep the garrison bottled up. Because that's what they were doing when Bishop Jeff and his army fell upon them without any warning. The English were taken completely by surprise and found themselves instantly on the back foot. Losing ground to the sudden attack by the Normans, it seems that some of the English were isolated from their compatriots. And the speed of this attack, along with the fact that the English was along with the fact that the English army was getting split up and isolated, makes me think that Bishop Geoffrey's army was mostly, or entirely, made up of Norman knights drawn from the garrisons of London, Winchester, and Salisbury. Because a cavalry army certainly would have that kind of maneuverability and speed to do what Bishop Geoffrey's army did. In the fighting that followed, Orderic tells us that the bishop's army killed some of the rebels, but captured others and, quote, mutilating a number of the prisoners, put the rest to flight, end quote. And that short statement actually gives us a lot of information. First of all, it suggests that the fighting was somewhat drawn out. I mean, how else would the bishop and his men have time to capture and torture prisoners prior to putting the English to flight? But beyond that, I think it provides a rather convincing bit of evidence that the bishop's army were knights. Because not only were they able to attack quickly, and not only were they clearly more maneuverable than the English, being able to isolate and capture prisoners, but the fact that they went on to mutilate those prisoners, just as William had done at Exeter, well, that just has knights written all over it. And after enjoying a few war crimes, the Norman knights liberated their compatriots in the garrison, and that left them free to seek retribution on the local population. Meanwhile, the army of Brian and Fitzosborne were closing in on Exeter. And that was terrible news for the army of Devon and Cornwall. The force that these two commanders were leading must have been huge. And so it is highly likely that the rebels knew an army was marching on them. And as such, they would have been quite aware that if they didn't play this just right, they might end up pushed back up against the walls of the city by the Norman knights where the besieged garrison could then join in on the attack from on top of the walls. It could be a disaster. And making matters worse, the garrison in Exeter almost certainly knew of Fitzosborne and Brian's approach as well. 
Something that often gets lost in fictional representations is that even in the best of times, siege lines are often porous. And the situation at Exeter was not the best of times. Given the size of the city and its position on the River Axe, I seriously doubt that the Cornish Devonshire army was able to completely cut off the city. Instead, there were likely blind spots and pockets that people could use in quiet times, probably in the dead of night, to move in and out of the city. And so information of the situation outside of the city would have been trickling in. And eventually, they would have received news of the approaching Normans. And the reason why I'm so certain that they knew of this advance is because as Fitzosborne and Brian closed in on the city, the garrison at Exeter galloped right out of the city gate and launched a surprise attack on the rebels. And Orderick tells us that it was the Norman garrison that led this charge. But he also tells us that the people of Exeter had enough of rebellions and had sided with William. So I wouldn't be surprised if there were also a number of Ferdsmen who joined the fray. But even worse for the rebels, with the garrison's sally keeping them engaged, Fitzosborne, Brian, and the Norman detachment were able to rush forward and attack the English from the rear. And the rebels, most of whom were just average people, were not prepared for anything like this. I mean, they were fighting in the English style, or at least they've been trying to fight in the English style. But the Normans waged a very different style of war. Cavalry and siege tactics weren't something that the English were accustomed to. And as the Normans and their allies crashed into the English lines, the rebels were forced into a rout. And we're told that the Norman knights, likely taking advantage of their speed and maneuverability, rushed after the fleeing army and, quote, punished their rash enterprise with a great slaughter, end quote. And now, with the siege lifted, Fitzosborne, Brian, their forces, and the garrison at Exeter were free to seek reprisals on the local population. Now, we know that individual scribes leave stuff out, and they massage other things. But even when we take everything together and try and assemble a sort of collage out of these various accounts, we're still left with comments in the record that makes it all too clear that things are being omitted. And one of these comments is from Orderick himself. And he tells a story of a very bloody 1069. Here's what he had to say. Quote, In so many conflicts, blood flowed freely on both sides. And the defenseless population, as well as those who were in arms, suffered from time to time severe disasters. The divine law was everywhere violated. And ecclesiastical discipline became almost universally relaxed. Murders were wretchedly frequent. Men's hearts were stimulated to evil by the incentives of covetousness and passion, and they were hurried in crowds to hell, condemned by God, whose judgments always prove just. End quote. So not only was the fighting widespread, but it resulted in huge numbers of casualties on both sides, including non combatants. And that's a striking admission. Because oftentimes, the killing of common, non-fighting women and men, along with the defenseless, like the sick, children, the elderly, is often just left out of these accounts. But here, Orderick just lays it out. 
And apparently, the social breakdown and violence of this era was so significant that it had knock-on effects, with the clergy basically giving it a green light and murders becoming commonplace, which I totally believe. I mean, if Bishop Jeff was mutilating prisoners, any preaching that he did about peace and not murdering people would have probably fallen a little flat. And so, at least according to Orderic, just about everyone was going to hell. Literally. And it clearly wasn't just the Normans who were doing the killing. We've got bandits, rebel armies, assassinations, you name it. And as I hinted at last episode, our sources also suggest that Harrower, that noble-killing, Norman-beheading rebel leader, was either already back in England and killing people, or he was on a ship heading to England with a plan to kill some people. It was an every-bloody-hand-on-deck situation in England. And reading between the lines, even through our scant records, it appears that uprisings and rebellions were taking place all over the island in 1069. And while many of the uprisings were crashing headlong into the Norman war machine, which had been sharpened by decades of continental feudalism, the fact remained that the kingdom was coming apart at the seams. And that was a big problem for William. I mean, sure, the sieges in the south had been lifted, but when he mustered this army, the plan had been to counter the Danish threat, not deal with rebellions in the southwest. Furthermore, his march north hadn't worked. The Danes were still out there, and now all he could do is try and contain them, which wouldn't be easy because they had f***ing boats. And he was doing this all while the Danes were apparently recruiting and preparing for a spring offensive. So that's just a bad position to be in. And on top of the overall sense of catastrophe that would have loomed over everything, there was something else that was spooking William as well. Because rather than staying on top of the Danes, suddenly the king split his army up. Count Robert of Eu, as well as the king's idiot half-brother, Robert of Mortain, were charged with the task of containing the Danes. And they were given a force to get that job done. And then William took the rest of his army, turned, and marched west. Now, why would he do that? Well, it turned out that East Stafford and Cheshire were getting raided all to hell. And while these rebellions had failed to take any Norman castles, they were doing a lot of damage. So something would need to be done about that. But then again, this was William, a guy who regularly left matters like this to his local commanders. So what made the situation in East Stafford different? What had spooked the bastard? Well, it might be that Stafford is about a two days march from Shrewsbury. And you'll remember that was the first target of Edric and Prince Blethyn's forces. And Orderic, who's the one who informs us about that attack, doesn't tell us where the army went after they left Shrewsbury. He only tells us that they burned the city and left. And while it's entirely plausible that Staffordshire just kicked off into a rebellion like some of the other communities had, there is the unavoidable fact that there was a rebel army out in the field and it was operating in that same location and it was unaccounted for. So many historians suspect that Edric and Blethyn were behind the uprisings in Mercia. At least some of them. 
and that while the Norman records underreact to the situation in the Midlands, this was likely a serious threat to Norman control. It must have been, because the king left Lindsay to deal with the situation in the Midlands personally. But regardless of whether the rebellion was entirely homegrown or whether it was supported by a Taff and his guerrilla friends, William had brought an enormous force to bear upon it. And in the end, Orderick tells us that, quote, the king found no difficulty in crushing considerable numbers of the insurgents at Stafford, end quote. And that is all he tells us about this conflict. Which is suspicious, right? And honestly, Orderick who's relating a lost portion of Poitiers, is rather tight-lipped about the events of these later years. And I suspect that's because the tenor of the Norman invasion changes at about this point. The conquest of England had already been shockingly brutal, even by medieval standards. But in 1069, William was escalating that violence even further. It's going to get bad enough, actually, that we'll have scribes condemning him. And even the church will get a little creeped out by the viciousness of William and his knights. So the terseness in the record makes me think that there was something that happened here that Poitiers didn't want to write about. But after William and his army did whatever it is that they did to Stafford, they moved on to Nottingham. And we're not told why. We don't know if they are there to seek supplies or if they are there to put down another rebellion. We aren't told. But by this point... It was getting pretty late in the year. Christmas was practically right around the corner. And that meant that the weather was getting just god-awful. Have you ever been in the north of England around Christmas time? It's charming. Like, really, really charming. So long as you stay in the pub. But then again, if you forget your woolly jumper, you're likely to get frostbite. So I'm guessing that whatever William was doing in Nottingham, it was probably being done close to a fireplace. And back in the frosty marshes of Lindsay, the Norman force under the command of the two Roberts, Robert of You and Robert the Idiot, well, they were still out there, doing their best to contain the Danes on the island and hold until spring came. But God, it was cold and damp out there. It was also just ridiculously hard to navigate. I mean, these were Norman knights, not swamp benders. They weren't built for this. Even worse, the Danes had local support. A lot of local support. And apparently, the Normans weren't doing a good job at containment because the Danes were getting so bold that they even started visiting the communities of Lincolnshire and joining in in their holiday parties. And I'm not kidding on that part, by the way. That's in the record. The Danes were hanging out with the locals and going to festivals. So yeah... Far from being blockaded on a swampy island, the Danes were taking field trips and partying it up with the English, all while the Normans were stuck on the other side of the shore, and not a single Englishman was offering them pies or inviting them to any parties. And that was the final f***ing straw for the two Roberts. And as if demonstrating why they weren't on anyone's Christmas list, they gathered a force, tracked the Danes to one of the holiday gatherings, launched a surprise attack, and slaughtered as many people as they could. Faced with that epic party foul, the Danes boarded their ships and headed up the River Trent, which by that point had become heavily swollen in the winter rains. And as the ships faded out of sight, all the Robertses could do was watch. 
and it wasn't long before a messenger arrived at Nottingham and notified William that the Danes had retaken York, where they planned to celebrate Christmas. I gave the Roberts one job, just one. Keep the fucking Danes contained on that fucking island. And the fucking worthless fucking Roberts couldn't even do that. Where the fuck is my horse? And so the king, his horsey, and his whole army had to pack up and begin marching to York. But holy crap, did this ever suck. By this point in the year, you couldn't swing a dead Northumbrian up here without hitting some sort of creek or river. And while that was inconvenient earlier in the campaign, they were now thoroughly in winter. And all those rains had turned the streams into creeks and the creeks into rivers. And the rivers, well, they might as well have been the fucking Atlantic at this point. The Titanic had more luck with icebergs than William was having with water right now. There's a reason why armies typically don't campaign this late in the year. And even worse, when William wasn't navigating the water, he had to navigate the woods, which were the territory of the Silvatici, the wild men. And while it's unlikely that these wild men would have arranged for assassinations against such a large host, if they had at all earned their name in the history books, they likely would have been placing obstacles on the roads and creating all manner of mischief for the army which would have further slowed them down on their advance. And all of this is on top of the fact that this was an invading army. William and the Normans didn't have many friends in England. And in the North, I suspect it was even worse. I'd be surprised if he had any friends. So the weather was against them, and so were the people. And you don't have to be part of an army storming a castle to cause problems for an army like this. You don't even have to be part of a band of wild men. Individual actors encountering a foreign army unfamiliar with the territory can, have, and do cause all kinds of problems for their enemies through simple things like misinformation or bad directions. So I'm not at all surprised that the advanced north wasn't going all that well. And I'm sure William's rage was boiling as he was trying to make his way north with full knowledge that the Danes were settling in for a nice cozy Christmas in York. I mean, for all he knew, they might have been repairing the walls and rebuilding the castles. And even worse, he knew the Danes weren't alone. They had large numbers of Northumbrian allies, as well as various nobles and supporters from southern England. And they also had hostages. Because somewhere in there was the king's hand-picked man, William Mallet, along with his wife and kids. And every piece of this reality must have been weighing on the conqueror's mind as he was trying to coax Glitterhoof across the latest stream that some crazy how had recently turned into the goddamn Rio Grande. But step by step, William and his army got closer and closer to their target until at last they hit the one landmark that was supposed to be wet, the River Air. Now, the air is a tributary to the River Ooze the river that cuts through the center of York. So to reach the city on foot, they would either have to cross the River Ooze, which was quite large, or they could cross here on the much more manageable air. So when William and his army approached the historic market town of Pontefract, which was perched on the side of the River Air, it must have been a relief because they were in the home stretch now. Once they crossed this river, it was only about 25 miles to York. 
and the bridge was coming into sight. Or at least, it should have been. The North was a productive place, and they knew how to use their waterways to move goods and people around in all kinds of weather. If the weather was good, they could always use the fords. If the weather was bad, there were ferries and bridges. But when William trotted his wet, half-frozen butt up to Pontefract, there was no bridge there. In fact, come to think of it, there were no ferries or bridges anywhere. They were just gone. We aren't told precisely what happened to them, but I think we can guess. Welcome to Yorkshire. So William and his men were stuck in Pontefract, and this was hostile territory. Anyone at this point could see that. And I'm sure that some of William's companions noticed that there are people watching them from across the river. And they look serious and unfriendly. Which, yeah, I mean, anyone who is willing to plonk down on a river shore in winter would have to be serious. So this wasn't looking good. And some of William's advisors began to suggest that they turn around and just head back home. Or at least head to somewhere warmer. And then they could return to the campaign once it was, you know, campaigning season. But William was hearing none of it. They were going to York. That part had been decided. And if the army didn't like being holed up at Pontefract, then they would just have to find a way to cross the river. So some suggested that they build a bridge. But William axed that idea as well. Building a bridge would mean that they need to work on both sides of the river, at least towards the end of the construction. And that would be the perfect time for an enemy force to attack. Especially since only a madman would try and construct a bridge while in full armor. And besides, these guys were knights, not bridge builders. So what are the odds that they could quickly construct a bridge that would be safe enough for thousands of horses to cross it? So yeah, that was a no-go. And truthfully, I'm not sure what William had in mind for how to cross this river. Because all we're told of are the ideas that William shot down. And he seemed to be shooting down everything. You know that friend who says they want to go out for dinner, but then says, nah, I don't feel like eating there, to every suggestion you make? That was William. And this went on for weeks. For three long weeks, they were stuck on the south side of the air. And historians, looking at the totality of the records, theorized that the reason why this took so long was because the army was forced to keep going upriver. Just relentlessly marching upriver, desperate to find anywhere that might be shallow enough to cross. Maybe around this bend, there'll be a bridge. Nope, no. How about around this bend? Maybe we can find some boat. No, no boats. And historian Bates argues that this march went as far as Leeds and possibly even farther. And given the topographical details in the record, I think he's right. And for me, that's actually hilarious. Because to get to Leeds, William and his army would have to cross the River Calder. And yet they were still being hemmed in by the river air. Which would mean that the people of Yorkshire were diligently destroying every single crossing that went northwards to York. But they left all the crossings that were going east to west. And upon crossing that river, any illusions that this was just a coincidence would have been shattered. And so, for weeks, the Normans continued their march, looking for a ford, a ferry, a bridge, anything that might enable them to go north. And for three weeks, they found nothing but a cold, damp, 
hostile country. Until one of William's knights, a man named Lesois de Moutier, spotted a place where they might be able to ford. And given the way Poitiers, through Orderic, relates this story, it sounds very much like there were knights all along the river, working in groups trying to find a crossing. Because Lisois and his 60 companions were well away from the main army when they found this crossing. But the river did appear to be a bit shallow right here. And to test it and make sure that it actually would work, Lisois and his men carefully waded across the river. And this was dangerous work. People drown all the time, and usually they aren't wearing a bunch of armor and carrying swords. So progress would have been slow as the men carefully searched out with their feet in the freezing water for any sudden drops, while also trying to avoid slipping on the algae-covered rocks or getting their feet stuck in the mud. But slowly, bit by bit, they made their way across the river. And remember how I said they were doing this while wearing armor and carrying weapons? Well, it turns out it was a good thing they did that because suddenly they were attacked from across the bank. And frankly, it was the perfect time to attack. The knights were caught out, defenseless and exposed. Now, we're not given much detail about the fight. As always, Poitiers cast things in a heroic light for the Normans, describing the English as having vast multitudes and the Normans bravely holding their ground. But however the fighting went, in the end, Lisois managed to crawl his damp ass out of the river and get back to William's camp by the next day. And there, he told the king they'd found a crossing. And this was a huge deal. And apparently, William was overjoyed with the discovery because Lisois was recorded as having estates in Cambridgeshire, Bedfordshire, Norfolk, Suffolk, and Essex. And while I'm sure that Lisois already had substantial English estates, you don't command that many men-at-arms if you're just some random tenant. Lisois was still doing really well for a knight, so I suspect that a lot of that was a direct thank you for finally finding the Christmas Ford to York. And having found the opening, William wasted no time. They'd been stuck down here for nearly a month. It was time to go. And they took advantage of Lisois' crossing so quickly, in fact, that by the end of the day, they were on the north side of the air and they were greeted by a dense wilderness. I mean, there was a road, but it really was more of a narrow woodland path, only wide enough to allow a single man to pass through. So William's army was forced to march single file, stretched out for God knows how long, and they marched through forests and swamps and over hills and through valleys. It would have taken forever, and it also would have left them exposed to any Silvatici who might be in the area. And we're not told how that advance went, but remember, Orderic spoke about a lot of bloodshed, and he also spoke about the Silvatici. So I suspect this advance probably was as difficult as the rest of it. But eventually, finally, they reached the outskirts of York. It had been a brutal and punishing march, but they had made it. And now they could finally bring the fight directly to the Danes and end this threat once and for all. Except, the Danes weren't there. They were back on their ships, floating in the Humber with their treasure and their hostages, laughing their asses off. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.